started this morning. Father, we do pray for um, just the couple cases that um, we've talked about this morning. Pray for Eric. Pray that he would indeed uh, go to um, a pleasant home there in Gresham, a like-minded church. Um, we pray that you would bless that church even as we're thinking about them. But we pray that Eric uh, would go there, that he would hear the gospel, that you would save him. Um, Lord, thank you for Julie and taking the opportunity um, through the mentorship program at Horizon um, and with these middle school um, girls. Oh, Lord, God, I pray that uh, you would work on their hearts, give Julie wisdom and how to engage them, and, a, um, and just thank you how she already has, and pray that you would work on these girls' hearts, um, that they, you would draw them to, the, to yourself, oh, Lord, God, and draw them out of a, a dark and a decaying culture um, into the light. Um, Lord, we would ask for that and pray for that. Uh, Lord, we pray for this morning just for energy and for clearness of mind uh, for all of us. Help us to understand your word, um, to know you, to love you, um, and we just pray for that. Thank you. Um, as we finish up, in, whether it's this week or next week, talking about prophecy, oh Lord God, help us to understand and help us to be able to interpret your word well so that we might know you well, so we might love you better. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so we're still working on the last kind of genre of prophecy, um, and we're just talking through some some principles. So basically, last week we just kind of I just kind of reminded you of um, some things you want to think about. A prophet fundamentally is not someone who uh, foretells the future, although that happens, um, but it is someone who speaks for God. Um, we talked about when you're working in a prophetic book, uh, you know Isaiah, Ezekiel you know, any of the prophets, you kind of want to locate that prophet in um, time and location uh, because they're speaking to their their context, even though uh, at times they are talking about the future and what God's going to do. Um, they're speaking to their own context. There's also a theological context. Uh, you really want to know um, the covenants in general, um, Adamic covenant, Noahic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, uh, especially the Mosaic Covenant, because the prophets uh, refer back to that one a lot, that and the Abrahamic Covenant. But the covenants are a key theological backdrop. Um, we talked about how the prophets came from all different walks of life, um, and we also talked about principles um, for how to, uh, three key principles for um, as, as we think about the prophets, and especially as you think about um, them foretelling future events, uh, how to think. Um, so we talked about the mountaintop principle, which is uh, that you can see um, two, uh, so the prophet might talk about things that are going to come in the future. They might look like they're right on top of each other, but as you get closer to those events, uh, we see that there are separation. Um, we talked about the fat lady principle, which is it's not over till the fat lady sings, which means that um, when there is prediction of the future, uh, it's got to match precisely. So there might be things that look uh, a lot like fulfillment, uh, but they would be a partial fulfillment, or what we call the step principle, which is you can have things that look an awful lot like the final fulfillment, but aren't. Uh, so we talked about a couple things. Uh, we talked about um, Acts 2 with the prophecy from Joel. We also talked about John the Baptist. He's supposed to look a lot like Elijah, and yet he's not Elijah. Um, and there's... Uh, uh, I think um, that towards the end, the Elijah will come. Uh, that seems to be what the testimony of Scripture. But that's just an illustration of that step principle, uh, along with the, the it's not over till it's over principle. Um, now, as we 
I want to give you a few more ideas um, about prophecy before we practice. Um, just a couple other things. Uh, one, as you enter uh, into the prophetic books, uh, there are different, even within the prophetic books, there's different things that happen, uh, meaning there's kind of like different subgenres of what happen. And I'm going to talk about three of those. There's a lot more that we could talk about. I just want to kind of give you a basic idea with um, kind of three subgenres within the prophetic literature. One is, the first one is what we would call an oracle of salvation. An oracle of salvation. And basically what this is, this is a positive message by the prophets. Um, it's a reassurance that God has heard uh, and that God is still going to keep his promises. Um, what promises? Well, that would be the promises embedded in the covenants. Um, you know, Abrahamic covenant, um, uh, uh, Davidic covenant, etc. Um, so, uh, really, this kind of message from the prophets is uh, designed to produce knowledge and hope for God's victory in the future. So, that's fairly important um, when uh, the nation is experiencing judgment, when they're experiencing. Um, evil, uh, when they're fighting against their own sinfulness, um, and there's all this kind of doom and gloom that the prophets will uh, give uh, reassurances, oracles of salvation, that God's going to work. He's going to fulfill his promises. Uh, it's going to happen. So that, that happens. And what you kind of want to focus on with these subgenres is how they're being used and why they're being used. Because if you understand the function of them, then your application, which is where we ultimately want to get to, um, will be guided by that function. So you could, in a broad scope, say that oracles of salvation, they're designed to produce knowledge and hope of God's victory. Uh, he's, it's going to happen. He's going to fulfill his promises. What is that designed to do? It's designed to bring hope, uh, along with, we could say, perseverance as well. Second type uh, announcements of judgment. Um, announcements of judgment. Basically, this is accusations from God through the prophet against the king and the nation. Um, and what God says, and it's not just to Israel, he'll pronounce the, the judgment against other nations uh, as well. So you see that in places like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. There'll be these sections where God is announcing judgment against other nations. Uh, and these more have to do with, usually with specific uh, concrete judgment in time. Meaning what? Stuff like Assyria. So like in Isaiah, Assyria is coming down and it conquers northern kingdom of Israel. And then it's like Assyria is surrounded Jerusalem and it looks like it's all over. Um, but uh, what God says to some of the kings and the people is that I'm going to deal with Assyria within a certain amount of time. And so um, there's that idea of a judgment is going to happen in the near future. Um, yes, there is prediction about the far future as well. But um, a lot of time these announcements of judgment, whether it's Israel or whether it's another nation, um, it's it's it's. It usually has to do with at least the near future. Can deal with the far future, but there's usually something about um, 
you know, you guys are going to go into exile. <laughs> like, that's a near judgment that's going to happen. Uh, there could be farther judgments as well. Finally, third one I want to bring your attention to. Oh, I'm um, sorry. Let me back up one stitch. The, the function... The function of these announcements of judgment is um, informing God's people of impending wrath and warning for the purpose of repentance, okay? So it's not just that God's going to judge. Um, that could be true, um, uh, but it's that, especially for Israel and for the king, that announcement of judgment is supposed to bring repentance. And there might even be... Um, there's always, and we talked about this last time, that when God announces judgment, um, there's always this, there's, there's this understanding that uh, he's telling us about judgment so that we might repent, and when we might repent, who knows, he might relent as well. Um, doesn't Not a guarantee, but, um, but that's what God is wanting. He's wanting repentance. So it's not just that God is announcing judgment for the sake of it. He is doing so to produce results, um, uh, produce repentance. Okay, third type is what we would call apocalyptic, which um, basically this is the stuff that is filled with graphic visions, filled with mysterious scenes of heaven and the future. So we're talking Daniel, we're talking Zechariah a little bit, um, and uh, th there's sections even within places like Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, less so Jeremiah, but... Um, you know, it's the stuff you normally associate with Daniel or Revelation. Uh, remember, uh, remember that Revelation is a prophetic book, so it would fall into this genre as well. And here's the thing. Um, some people draw a sharp distinction between apocalyptic and prophetic literature. I don't. I just see apocalyptic literature as one of these subgenres of prophecy. It's still prophecy. Uh, it just feels different. And um, if there is a difference, um, maybe you could say it like this. Apocalyptic normally has to do with distant judgment and restoration. So the other two were kind of more near and close in time, whereas apocalyptic is like, okay, we're talking about the far future, the final resolution of things. Um, why is it used? Um, well, what's interesting, both in Daniel and, let's say, Revelation apocalyptic is used um, to bring hope and perseverance. It's designed to be encouraging. It's designed to, uh, it has its um, uh, horrific elements, no doubt, but it's designed um, to speak to God's people in a dark time. They're living through a dark time, and it's designed to, um, or maybe they're being apathetic, that's also a possibility, and it's designed to stir them up to hope and perseverance. So, as you think about those subgenres, um, especially the function of each um, is you want to pay attention to. Um, God's using it to produce repentance in his people, or he's announcing hope coming soon, or hope, the ultimate hope of the future. And so, if you understand that function, uh, broadly speaking, uh, you will we'll have a better time of applying the, the prophets uh, because that's, that's tricky. Like, how do we move from what Isaiah is saying to something that we can apply today? Because he's not addressing us. Um, he's addressing other people, and yet there are implications for us. So how do we do that? Part of that is going to be understanding the function 
of each of those types of subgenres. Let me pause and um, see what kind of questions you have about prophecy, about how prophecy is generally speaking used. Big one is repentance, and the second one would be hope and perseverance. Okay, the, in broad scope, um, those are what it's designed to do. Okay, any questions? Okay, uh, let's talk about a couple more principles about application. So now we're kind of talking about application. Um, here's one to avoid. We don't do newspaper exegesis, which means I don't read the prophetic books with a newspaper in one hand um, and you know, my Bible open, right? So a lot of people do that kind of a thing, and it gets them into trouble pretty quick, right? Um, we understand the text in its context. Does the scriptures give information about the future? Yes. But it's never, I would argue, it's never designed to give you like a precise like calendar. Like you can say this thing comes after this thing, but you know, think about Jesus' first coming, right? There are indications in the Old Testament about when even he's going to come, and those predictions get fulfilled precisely and yet the purpose of the literature is not necessarily to say, oh yeah, you can create your calendar. Okay, so we really want to avoid that. Um, again, not, not that scripture doesn't speak, not that prophecy doesn't speak um, to watch out for these signs, watch out for this stuff coming. So there is that, but it's not really designed for you to create a, a, an eschatological calendar. Okay? Um, now that doesn't mean like numbers. Here's another thing to keep in mind. Um, so... Usually you get to discern someone's hermeneutics when you walk through something like Revelation or Daniel, and it's got these numbers, and it's talking about 69 weeks or 70 weeks, and it's talking about 1,260 days or whatever it is, you know, and a lot of people, one, one faithful brother in Christ would say, well, see, that's symbolic for blah, 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 blah. Uh, this happens especially with 144,000 in Revelation, right? That's symbolic of like the full number of the elect. Okay, um, so, um, that, but um, here's the rule of thumb. Take things as literal unless there is information, there's contextual information that would let, lead us to believe this is somehow being used symbolically, okay? So even with regard to numbers, it's not, um, it's not that you automatically jump in to say, oh, this is symbolic and mysterious and it represents this thing. Well, See, see how the context is leading you. The author has an intent with those numbers and how he's reporting those numbers. It could be 144,000 because that's the number. Um, and so unless there's some contextual information that would lead us to believe they're being used symbolically, they're numbers. <laughs> and they're reporting, they're not anything special. So, yeah, uh, Eden. So that's, so what you're bringing up, just to bring everyone up to speed, so Eden's talking about the millennium, and that's a big one. So millennium, um, end of chapter 19 in Revelation, beginning of chapter 20, says that um, there's, Christ is going to come down and reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years before the final um, judgment and ending of all things. And um, a lot of our amillennial brothers and sisters would say, well, that number thousand is just, some, it's just a big number. And it's just symbolic for um, Christ reigning, and they would generally say that 
you know, that's, that's, he started to reign with his uh, ascension, you know, or something like that. And so that number is just a big number, and it's just symbolic for that. Um, and that, that um, interpretation has a long pedigree going back um, probably to the second century at least. But what's interesting, even in that early time frame, you can see some who are taking it very literally, uh, and then some who start to deviate and take it um, symbolically. Um, so some of it is sheer tradition. Um, that's a long-standing tradition. That's the, been the majority position over the course of Christian history, um, is taking the, the millennium um, uh, symbolically in that sense. Um, and so some of it is just sheer tradition. Um, but um, there's other, it's not that these people are stupid. Like, I never want to characterize, like, oh, why would you, that's just so obvious. Take that as literal. Um, they've got sophisticated arguments and reasons for why they're taking it to be that. So um, when, it's when you start to try to line things up, like, well, how does that line up with this, and how does that line up with that? Um, some of those other contextual clues, uh, well, at least they would say, kind of lead them to, to taking it in a symbolic way. So... Well, think about what, let's suppose, um, let's suppose God had done that and he announces specifically it's going to happen here. What would the reaction of people be? Yeah. We try to repent at the last minute, right? Um, So uh, God is wise to not give us every detail of information um, because he knows how we would, us as sinful creatures would react. That's part of it anyway, so yeah. Uh, Susan? Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. And that's even part of the whole discussion um, when you're talking uh, like the Olivet Discourse and uh, uh, Revelation or, you know, even stuff in the Old Testament is like, what does that mean soon? And so there's just things like that that play into it. As I will say this, Revelation is hard, not because it's unclear, but because you have to have all the knowledge of all 65 books that came before to be able to get it. Uh, it's like calculus, right? So calculus is not unclear. It's perfectly clear. Um, it's just that you have to have all the stuff that came before and have mastered that to be able to do well 
um, in that course. Same thing with Revelation, right? So that blessing is legitimate and real. Uh, it just takes a lot of work. Um, and you're, you're trying, to end, uh, trying to tie all that together. Um, and smart and good and faithful brothers and sisters in the Lord um, work hard, and then they disagree. And that's just a reality of us being uh, fallible interpreters. The revelation is not fallible, but we are. Um, so, uh, yeah, Tony. Mm-hmm. There you go. So there is, there is, oh, I'll get you, Genevieve, I saw your hand. Um, um, there is specificity, but there is, yeah, there's, there's unknown. There's both, right, at the, all at the same time. And uh, uh, what does it all amount to? Uh, it does. It, it, a lot of the, how do we apply Revelation? Well, a lot of that comes down to uh, even what Jesus is saying there in Mark 13, hope, um, because the folks, even in, so you think about Revelation, who's it written to? It's written to those seven churches. And what are those seven churches characterized as? Well, some of them are doing well, but they're being persecuted. Some of them are apathetic and need to be stirred up. Um, and so you look at the character of those churches, and then Revelation is written to them, first and foremost. And so what's it supposed to do? It's supposed to say, well, um, you're going through hard things now. Uh, there's going to be a lot of our other hard things for people in the future but God's going to win, so that should do two things. One, give you hope and perseverance now, um, but also uh, some, uh, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, and uh, if you're apathetic, hey, you need to wake up, uh, and you need to labor to be the overcomer that's talked about in the, um, the overcomer through faith in Jesus um, that's talked about in Revelation. So those are kind of the broad arcs of application um, as you think about whether it's Revelation or even Old Testament prophecy as well. Okay, Genevieve. Yeah. We can say it, left behind, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's, uh, all of those should say in the front cover, this is a work of fiction. Right? Um, so it's now, to be fair, I think uh, the, uh, who is it, Tim LaHaye? Is that the guy? 
so, you know, they're trying, I think they're, you know, it's, it's like trying to present, uh, this is what it could look like. I don't think it's helpful to do that. Uh, I really don't. Because then what happens, this is kind of the same thing, why I have troubles with um, even some of the like popular uh, gospel presentations of here's what Jesus is like. In our culture, in our, yeah, the, I, I do have a little bit of a beef with the chosen, not because I think it's all bad, but anyway. Um, but the reason is, here's my reasoning, whether it's left behind or whether it's the chosen, as soon as you read that, and it's concretized in a time and a place, and especially as you put it in a, a movie format, it becomes truth for people. And then they live according to that rather than the scriptures. And so it's a weird sort of like, not that it's malevolent or anything like that. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying that practically it, it shifts you out of what you're supposed to be doing, looking at the scriptures, interpreting the scriptures in context according to authorial intent, listening to them, and then that stuff, it, be, it becomes truth. And so that's why I'm just leery of it and wary of it. So does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And we should, uh, I mean, we should, right? Like, just the, the even what Susan just read, um, there's a blessing on being reading it and seeking to apply it. Um, there's a bad way you could be infatuated with Revelation. Uh, there's a, a good way. What is the master question as far as Bible interpretation? What is the human author trying to say? And as long as we come back to that and then align our application with that, um, then we'll, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. So, yes, Bruce. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh which leads us to a couple other principles. We can't be dogmatic where the scripture doesn't say anything. You can't speculate where scripture doesn't say anything. It's going to get it's going to get you into trouble. Um okay, um how do we then apply this and we've already talked about the general arcs of application. Um, I'll just give you a few more uh, to think about. Be very wary of jumping too quickly to application that is one to one with the original audience. Consider the historical context, theological context, and the difference in mission and covenant between Israel and the church. So I crack open Isaiah 1, which is going to be part of our example text, and it talks about how bad. Um, Israel is, and God's railing against them. Well, it could be really easy to just directly translate over and to say, well, see, God's angry at the church, and it's failing, and it's all this. Well, wait a minute. You have to understand what is being said to that audience in that context. Where are we at? What are the similarities? What are the differences? Uh, and you have to account for that when you're thinking about application. What hard issues were the prophets addressing? What similar hard issues do we face today? How did the prophet call Israel to faith and repentance? And what similar circumstances did the church need to have faith and repentance today? Um, what promises and hope did the prophet use to encourage his audience? How does the church relate to those same promises and hopes? There's going to be similarities and differences because we're not Israel. Um, uh, what else? Um, 
Uh, one of the encouraging things that you can see is some of not uh, some of the prophecies that were spoken of have been literally fulfilled in Jesus. So that should give you hope and encouragement to see the rest of them being fulfilled um, in the future. That should encourage your faith. Um, you also get to see God's character through the prophets. You see that he hates sin and wickedness. He hates sinners and evildoers. Um, and yet God is also patient and merciful. So we want to look at God's character. Um, God acts unexpectedly in a lot of these passages. So that gives us some insight into how God is and how he's different from us. Um, anything others? I'm trying to just highlight a few of these. A lot of that, remember, um, it's supposed to give you hope um, and, and joy so that you can persevere. So, um, you know, you look at what God does in the, just the, the powerfulness, the character uh, of him, his plan all coming together. That's supposed to exhilarate you um, so that you're able to go through the hard times. Um, and you're supposed to persevere until uh, the end. Uh, yeah, and those are a few, just a few things to keep in mind. So, um, as long as you keep that um, idea of it's designed to call the, um, people to repentance who are not walking in obedience or walking in apathy, they're walking in wickedness, it's designed also to bring hope and perseverance. Um, if you keep that in mind, that's going to guide your, your, interpret, your application of the text um, a lot. Uh, questions. Okay, let's let's play around with this. So, go to Isaiah one. We'll see how far we get. Someone read. We're we're going to look at for practice um, Isaiah one one through twenty. Now, we could drop in um, into many different prophetic texts. The difficulty is if you do that, like if I just parachuted us into the middle of a book, well, you don't have a, a, a lot of literary context, which you need a lot of that uh, for helping understand what the prophets are saying. So we're going to start at the very beginning of a prophetic book and just think about what, what um, Isaiah is saying. Okay? Now someone read just verse 1 of Isaiah. Okay, now, before even looking at 1, 1 through 20, what would be a wise thing to do at this point? Yeah, go back and read Kings. Um, and nicely enough, we got a, um, a reference point for which kings we're talking about. And so if you correlated that with 2 Kings, which is where um, you, you would look, or Kings in general, you would fi find yourself in 2 Kings 15 through 20, Okay. So it would be a wise um, course of action to read those chapters. What would we be looking for in those chapters if we read them? Yeah, so chronology. What, what else? So we're going to 2 Kings 15 through 20, and we're reading that, and we're looking for the chronology of things. What else are we looking for that will help us with Isaiah 1? All right, Eden first, then Bruce. 
Yeah, the condition of the people. What are the people like? What's happening with them at this point in history? Okay, Bruce. Yeah. How he dealt with those kings. Uh, what, um, what's the evaluation of the, the, each of these kings? Uh, you're just trying to get a sense of the situation uh, in multiple levels. The people, the king, uh, politically, what is happening. Um, so I'll just give you the, the shortcut version. I already kind of indicated it earlier. Assyria is the big uh, bad guy on the block. Um, it is the superpower at this time. It is to the north and east. It encompasses um, you know, a portion of um, a good swath of land. And it is, uh, it first threatens the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, and then um, as it conquers Israel, it also threatens Judah. So that's all, a lot of the, um, it's not everything that's happening politically, but that's a big political thing that's happening uh, at this time. So this is near, Isaiah's written nearing the time of the exile of the northern kingdom, not the southern kingdom yet, although the southern kingdom is threatened. That's a big context um, coming into this, okay? Anything else we might want to, like, if, as we're reading Second Kings 15 through 20, things we might want to be on the lookout for that will help us interpret Isaiah 1? Yeah. Yeah, so cl- classification of these kings. Uh, these are all kings of Judah. Um, so is this a good guy? Is this a bad guy? Uh, how are they measured? And a, a king's talks about that. Mm-hmm. Good. Anything else that we might be on the lookout for in Second Kings 15 through 20? Key events. Yeah, key events. Yeah, Brenda. From you. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that's see, that's the issue is we. We mistakenly think that a new believer should just be able to crack the Bible and do fine with it. And they're going to get something out of it, no doubt. Um, But that's where they need a believer who's been down the road a little bit and knows some of these things can guide them into that. Uh, You know, um, I was talking with my dad the other day about this. Like, one of the most effective ways of discipling someone is just sitting down with them and cracking the scriptures and doing this. Um, so you're probably not going to start in Isaiah 1 if you're doing this with a new believer, right? Although they ought to understand the flow of the whole storyline, even without like diving into the details of Isaiah 1. That would be helpful for them. But you're probably going to start with something like a gospel, and you're going to say, well, let's look through these chapters, and let's see who Jesus is, and let's see what he requires of us, right? But they need help um, to, to be able to do that. Um, and so we, we, the scriptures are infallible. They are sufficient. But um, we do people a disservice by just thinking, you can just crack it and understand it without a lot of heart, without work or guidance, and it's just not true. Uh, it's not how God's designed it. So, um, does that answer your question, Brenda? I know I kind of, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Right. Yeah. 
Well, it, with someone like that, I might, you know, t- you know, I try to explain to them, you know, it's good that you want to understand what's happening next. Um, you just got to understand that if you're going to understand it right in the way that God wants you to, that's going to take a lot of work to understand the rest of the Bible to a point where you can legitimately and reasonably walk through the Revelation. Now, could you still sit down with someone and walk through Revelation in broad arc form? Yeah, you can say, um, hey, God gave Revelation to bring encouragement to suffering believers, to stir up those who are apathetic, um, and to, um, you know, to, to encourage in overcoming and perseverance. And you can walk through in broad, kind of not in all the details, but in the broad swaths of the movement of Revelation, and you can give them general understanding of, well, here's generally speaking what's coming next. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think you can still do that in kind of like there's just a level of precision that you're going to be able to get to depending on what someone is at. Um, but as long as you keep the main thrust and main arc, you don't get um, you know the shape of the forest and don't get lost in the trees, that'll still be helpful for them. So, yeah. No, thanks for that discussion. Oh, okay, Bruce, and then Tony. See, the Bible's not really written to be, like, individual. I mean, it, we do. We come to the scriptures. We learn from them individually. But it's designed, it's a community project together, right? You need teachers and guides and people to come alongside together. And so there's kind of been, I don't know when this, this came about, but it seems like the last 100, 150 years, there's kind of this notion that you should be able to just crack your Bible on your own and do just fine. And it's really done people, a lot of people a disservice, I think. Um, and unfortunately, but okay, there was a Tony. I think you were you're, you're next so in the queue. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. I think, I mean, just back to our discussion we were having before, I think one of the contexts that we really need to lay uh, for people pretty quickly as, as, as believers 
is the storyline, right? So, you know, when we proclaim the gospel, we often proclaim it, um, and this is right, this is good, um, God is holy, you're a sinner, you need um, a Savior, God has provided the Savior, Jesus Christ, through repentance and faith, you can come to know him, um, your sins are forgiven, great, good, but there's no context, right? There's no storyline where God placed it in a storyline, and so that's part of um, I think one of the things we need to do pretty quickly with a new believer is give them the storyline. Give them the broad sweep of, like, here's how God is acting in history and being able to describe that um, so that they have a context to place things in. And then as they grow in knowledge, you're able to fill in the, the blanks, so to speak. So That's why, like, that little gospel tracks um, we, uh, I put out there on the table, I try to put some elements of the storyline in it so that it's not just, um, you know, God, man, um, sin, Christ response. That's good, but in the context of a storyline that makes sense of not just my personal relationship with God, but all of what God is doing in history, because he's doing more than just saving individuals. He is saving individuals, praise the Lord, but he's doing more than that, and there's a broader scope. So. Yeah, and that's even part of that, saving individuals into a people like we've been talking about. Okay, um, so we're basically out of time. Uh, what you might do this week, we'll, do, we'll play around with this um, next week. Um, and that, So we got next week, we'll finish up, Lord willing, and then we will, um, we will the week after, which I think is, yeah, it's the first week in February, we will um, we'll start talking about... Uh, uh, the doctrine of God, um, and just studying and thinking about God and how we can know God. So, um, so we're about done here. But what you might do over this week, if you have some time, is uh, you might read Second Kings fifteen through twenty, um, and then you might just spend some time in Isaiah one one through twenty. So one one through twenty, not the whole first chapter, but just one one through twenty, um, and we'll play around with that uh, next Sunday. So, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you uh, that you are in charge of history. Uh, it is unfolding exactly the way you want to. Um, and for your glory, for your honor, um, for uh, the praise of your name. Lord, help us to praise you. Help us to be focused on you as we come this morning. As the gathering happens here shortly, um, pray that you would remove distractions from our hearts uh, and that our focus would be on you, on your character, on your great acts, on your mercy through the gospel, um, and I pray that um, you would um, you would just bless your people richly this morning. Um, prepare our hearts, help us to encourage one another, challenge one another, help us to help one another grow in following you and understanding the scriptures better. We ask these things in your name. Amen.